how would you like your con served? Let me count the ways. There's Elizabeth Holmes, the young, beautiful, and seemingly brilliant tech entrepreneur who promises a revolutionary new way to test and treat diseases, which was all built on a house of cards and a fake voice. We've made it possible to run comprehensive laboratory tests from a tiny sample or a few drops of blood. There's the skeezy boyfriend who gradually scams his earnest restaurant tour girlfriend out of everything she owns, popularized in the Netflix series Bad Vegan. Anthony told Sarma she had to perform a series of tests. He promises her that he is going to make Sarma and her dog immortal. Then there's the dueling Firefest documentaries from Hulu and Netflix about the ill-fated, quote-unquote, luxury music festival. I, for one, will never forget the worker who offered oral sex for an Evian. And, of course, Neon Hum Media, the publisher of Our Fair Show, who is also in on the game, with a whole series about scammers called Smokescreen, about scamming priests, scamming politicians, and even scammy dog rescues. I truly can't count them all. Scammertainment is having a renaissance. And the show you might say started it all, at least as far as podcasts go, was Dirty John. Who you marry might be the most important decision of your life, but it can also be the least rational. Hosted by Los Angeles Times reporter Christopher Gofford, the series follows 59-year-old interior designer Deborah Newell and her romance with the hunky yet mysterious John Meehan, a man we come to know as Dirty John. The podcast poses the eternal question. Do you really know who you marry? It was a fairy tale that felt too good to be true. And it was. Deborah became just another victim in a long line of victims. But this time, she would be his last. The podcast, while it was an unmitigated success, and it was eventually made into a TV show by the same name, starring Connie Britton. And in the five years since the podcast was released, a flood of scam, grift, and swindle tales have filled our phones, ears, and eyes from platform to platform. But for the love of all that is maybe true, why? Today, we go behind the scenes of one of the shows that started it all with the reporter himself. And we'll also look for answers. Why do we love these stories so much? And what does it say about us? From Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Mariah Smith. And this is Spectacle True Crime. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done 
felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. So who was Dirty John? Dirty John is uh, the nickname for this guy, John Meehan, who is a uh, a swindler, a con man, and an extortionist. He's basically a uh, a former uh, nurse anesthetist who got hooked on surgical painkillers and lost his job in the Midwest and began conning women. John would go online, go on dating sites, looking for women. Chris says he'd cast a wide net. Then... He'd find people and he would seduce them, swindle them, and, uh, and then terrorize them. And this went on for years and years. Seduce, swindle, and terrorize. I feel like that pretty much sums up the entire true crime subgenre of scam stories. Chris's reporting would later culminate with a multi-part series in The Times and the podcast Dirty John. Chris focused on a relationship John had with one of his marks, an interior designer from Newport Beach named Deborah Newell. Deborah, like many other victims of John, met him online, on a dating site for people over 50. She'd been coming out of a bad relationship, and he was, or at least he appeared to be, the total package. Looked very successful, according to everything in his profile. He posted a few pictures, said he was a physician. So I thought, hmm, interesting. Seems safe. He said he was a, uh, a doctor, told her that he had been in Iraq volunteering for Doctors Without Borders. Deborah was smitten. And when you're in love, well, sometimes you do crazy things, like get married after two months. But it wasn't long before things seemed a little odd about John. First of all, he had, like, no possessions. He had a, uh, basically had one pair of clothes, which was a set of surgical scrubs that he wore everywhere. This is part of his costume. And even when she invites him to a, uh, an upscale, uh, like, tux-only cancer charity benefit, he shows up in these scrubs. And she thinks, well, he's a busy doctor. And she's, she's willing to kind of overlook these eccentricities. And anesthesiologists are known for making good money. But he never brought home a paycheck. John explained that as a freelance anesthesiologist, he sometimes did off-the-books work for patients who paid cash. What she did know is that she'd never been happier with a man. That on days when he wasn't away, he doted on her endlessly. And he is... In her mind, the, uh, the perfect husband, you know, he anticipates her needs before she even knows she has them. He gets her groceries. He carries her bag for her. He offers to take over her banking for her to relieve her of the burden. She's a busy businesswoman. Of course, all of these things are ways that he is going to start controlling her. She doesn't perceive this until uh, later in the game. 
Deborah wanted this relationship to work. She wanted to believe the fantasy that John sold her. Part of what makes scam stories so relatable is that we've all been a little blinded by love. Maybe given someone a second or third chance when we shouldn't have. Deborah was trying to ignore the red flags. But her daughters, they couldn't do that. Her daughter Jacqueline had worked in the medical field in sales for plastic surgeons. She had been around doctors. And John, he looked like he was playing dress-up. And she notices a couple things about him that make her suspicious, like the, uh, the cuffs of his surgical scrubs on the pants. They're frayed, and his fingernails are dirty. Okay. Ew. And these things look to her like someone who's probably not really a practicing doctor. So she gets suspicious. She puts a tracker on his car, and it causes a lot of strife inside the family. In the meantime, Deborah unintentionally starts to learn more about John's life. She walks into the office and finds a treasure trove of documents, 300 pages laying out arrests, restraining orders, printouts from a website called datingpsychos.com. John, being one of said psychos, it doesn't look good. There's even some uh, stuff about how he allegedly plotted to kill some uh, Laguna Beach detectives in a case, and also that he was storing, he was keeping cyanide in his uh, desert storage locker. It's wild. That's the moment when the alarm bells are supposed to go off. When we hear these stories, sometimes we think, I wouldn't ever get fooled like that. How could she not see it coming? So there's all this stuff that she comes across, and he has explanations for it, right? He says, a lot of this is lies. Lies pervaded by my vengeful ex-wife, right? Lies peddled by angry women. The cops are lying, or it was mistaken identity. And in the case of the, uh, the cyanide, he said, oh, I have multiple sclerosis, and I keep that around in case it gets painful enough. I need to kill myself quickly and painlessly. So he's got an explanation for everything, and she took her vows seriously, she says, for better or for worse, right? Remember, this perfect guy who anticipates her every need or want, who seems to be trained on her obsessively, he's got the answers she wants to hear. But there's another reason why Deborah was willing to believe him, to accept him no matter what. There was an additional family dynamic you may remember from the, uh, from the show, which is that she comes from a family steeped in the Christian faith and this idea of forgiveness. And she had this older sister, Cindy, who was shot to death by her husband in uh, 1984. Deborah's mother came to forgive the son-in-law who had killed her own daughter. Forgiveness was something really core to this family. And so John Meehan managed to exploit Deborah's compassionate nature, weaponize it against her. Oftentimes, we listen to stories like Deborah's with some moral superiority. Like, come on, I would see through that. But con artists are con artists for a reason. They're good at it. You'd be surprised. Your friends, your family, someone you know has likely been scammed. While teaching at a local college, Chris ran into someone whose mother had encountered John and luckily ran the other direction. But the fact that even somebody that I knew had kind of a connection to him suggested to me that he cast this very wide net and that there were many, many more victims 
than I ever learned about. I talked to a lot of people, only a handful were willing to go on the record, which is another thing that is worth keeping in mind when we're talking about con artists. They depend on people being embarrassed and uh, ashamed of their behavior. With any other true crime story, there's a sense of justice, of finding the perpetrator, making them pay for what they did. But with con artists, it's a little less black and white. They rely on making their marks complicit. So when you admit you fall victim to a con artist, you're humiliated. And who wants to tell the world that? And one thing he would say is, you think this restraining order is going to keep me away? You think this piece of paper is going to keep me away from you? So he would frighten people. Even more victims came forward after the podcast aired, sharing stories he wished he could have fit into the series. She said, yeah, he had the most peculiar way of eating. He would, uh, he would sit with his forearm kind of guarding his plate. And I didn't know what to make of it until I realized that he had been in prison. And this is probably a habit that he picked up in, in prison, learning to guard his food from the other inmates. When we talk about scam stories, there's a question that always comes up. Why do they do it? I mean, why did Elizabeth Holmes knowingly start a fake biotech company? Why did the tender swindler swindle? Why did Anna Sorkin pretend to be an heiress? For John, on top of clearly being a psychopath, he was also a drug addict. I think he had a drug habit and he needed money. That's a question that I kept asking myself in uh, Bad Vegan, actually. Like, what is this guy's endgame? What is he doing with all this money? And then the, uh, the gambling thing came up. And I thought, oh, okay, that's the bottomless hole that all of this money is going down. So I think with Meehan, it was uh, a drug addiction. And he just was trying to finance his drug addiction. And just going from person to person, uh, destroying their lives along the way. But it doesn't answer everything. Chris describes John as the Javier Bardem character from No Country for Old Men. The kind of person who feels blank who cons or kills for the sake of it, nothing more. Chris did try to dig into John's past a bit more to try to understand something, really anything that could shed more light onto his motives. Well, he had this father who ran a casino who was described to me as kind of a semi-gangster affiliated uh, person. And his dad apparently would enlist him in schemes to defraud insurance companies. And so as a, as a young man, John would supposedly like throw himself in front of cars or he would pretend to find a piece of glass in his taco. I think this is the way he was raised. Now, whether this explains him, I don't know if he can go that far, but the sisters did tell me that this is part of his background, yeah. I mean, I can't say I understand the guy or where he's coming from. And uh, after a while, your attempts kind of hit a brick wall. Chris came to the story after John's death, after his con came to a head with Deborah's children. He attacked her daughter Tara with a knife in a Newport Beach parking structure. She fought back, and he died from his injuries four days later. Chris never had a chance to interview him and ask him any of these questions. But who knows if it would have made a difference. You know, a lot of people have asked me, like, what I would ask him if he were alive. And I actually don't know. And I think that anything I ask him, he would lie to me about. That's really one thing I'm sure of. 
And so I don't know if it would be that fruitful to have a, uh, a jailhouse interview with him. I did get a question in Norway once. I was on a panel and they said, how could you write about this guy who's not alive to defend himself? And my response was, look, I've got all these letters, these emails and texts from him in which he represents himself. I think you get an accurate feel for, uh, for who he is based on the things he said and uh, the threats he made. I mean, I think about that a lot, actually. I'm much more interested in uh, stories centered on uh, victims than I am on the, uh, the perpetrators. This is an important point Chris makes. While all the TV shows and podcasts out there present flashy trailers featuring these seemingly charismatic and creepy con artists, reporters like Chris are often more concerned with the victims of these crimes, ensuring their stories are being heard and centered. I really dislike shows that uh, romanticize the bad guy or that try and counterfeit an intimacy with the bad guy that isn't uh, legitimately knowable. I guess one thing I'd say about Dirty John is I, I learned some things about human psychology and the making of it. I learned about this concept called uh, coercive control, which is a subset of domestic abuse, which doesn't necessarily involve violence. It involves intimidation. It involves gaslighting, you know, which are lies that are intended to make you feel insane. It involves like micro-regulation of, the, uh, of your day-to-day life so that the abuser will uh, install keystroke loggers in your computer to monitor your emails. They'll hide your phone. They'll tell you how to fold the towels. They'll tell you how to fold the socks, how to do your hair. When you're going out for a job interview, they'll spill coffee on your best suit. They'll go online and pretend to be you and ruin your reputation. So as a journalist, you can write an ordinary feature about a phenomenon like this and find some people to quote, and it'll be a fine story, but you can probably tell a much more powerful story if you go deep inside one person's or one family's experience. And that's exactly what Chris's series does. And it touched a nerve with people. It shed light on this abusive behavior, told Deborah's story to make sure the next John can be stopped. But it was also gripping. It was number one on many podcast apps, was translated into multiple languages, and later turned into a TV franchise of the same name. So why? Why can we not get enough of these stories? And also, why have they become so prevalent? That's next. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. 
While stories of scammers, grifters, and con artists are very hot right now, they're not new. I thought I would bring in my producer, Joanna Clay, to talk about it. So the term con comes from confidence. There's the confidence man, the con man, and the confidence trick, or what they do to get their mark. I talked a bit about this with Caroline Bologna. She's a senior reporter at HuffPost. That term comes from the idea of confidence artist, which you know refers to a person who basically uses trickery, behaves with a sense of confidence that they often aren't even necessarily breaking a law or committing a crime. They're often just persuading people to give them money or other benefits. You know, I think that's what's tough about these stories, like Bad Vegan or Inventing Anna. It's not always a clear-cut crime, so catching them is pretty hard. Right, and they often get people to help them out in the scheme. So, for example, you know, in Dirty John, there's a moment in one of the episodes where there's a break-in in her house, and John is like, oh, we should definitely get security cameras installed. Oh, right. Yes, when they come home to that random woman sitting in the living room. Yeah, she's wearing Deborah's clothes, drinking Ovaltine, clutching a Bible. Deborah didn't press charges, but it's presumed that John set that whole scenario up so he could get cameras installed and spy on Deborah. Or in Bad Vegan, for instance, there was that associate of the partner that was texting her nonstop and vouched for him. Right, and it turned out to actually be him. He was just impersonating his own, like, business partner. Which, in hindsight, is a twist I literally should have seen coming. Right, so it's like this genius crime that's not a crime. They charm you with promises of romance, like John, or in the case of Bad Vegan, the immortality of your dog. They rope you in with this fantasy, and I think it's a totally natural impulse to want to see that through, to want to do everything in your power to see if it's real. Some people would say some ways a victimless crime because people agreed to do things, you know, of their own volition in a sense. Um, So I think that's part of why people get so fascinated with this form of true crime, because it doesn't feel quite as icky as being obsessed with murder or something very gruesome where there's a person dies. And the stakes aren't life and death, typically. And I have to say, I still feel kind of gross. Yeah, I still feel kind of icky when watching scammer stories. I think because there isn't the same satisfying sense of justice that you get in typical true crime narratives or even procedural narratives. Dirty John is actually an exception because John dies and he can't con anyone anymore, thankfully. But in a lot of these, you know, Netflix, Hulu docuseries, like the Tinder swindler, for example, they just keep going. They almost are invigorated by this celebrity. And there's almost, I want to say, a sick fascination with the con artist. Chris mentioned he hates when people romanticize the con artist. And I think we see that a little bit with Elizabeth Holmes and people don't quite realize it. Totally. I mean, we talked about in a previous episode how women dressed up as Ted Bundy's victims at his trial. And you had women dressing up as Elizabeth Holmes, so like doing Elizabeth Holmes cosplay at her trial. I mean, the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos thing, what people don't realize is a lot of that trial is about her defrauding investors. But she also put 
innocent people's health at risk, which I've seen written about a little bit more, but people sort of get wrapped up in the whole narrative of just how weird she was and a lot of things around that. I think the, you know, the Amanda Seyfried show goes a little bit into showing like the real life people whose lives were affected. And a lot of these were poor people um, who didn't have a lot of great access to healthcare and things like that. Full disclosure, I watched all the Elizabeth Holmes content. I watched The Dropout. I listened to the podcast. I find Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos, fascinating, the whole thing. But I think her story, the Theranos story, Elizabeth Holmes story, it really plays into this obsession that we have around this narrative, which is the scheme. Like, how did they do it? How did they con people? Right. And with her, you really see the early conversations with that professor who told her that her idea was totally unscientific. Yeah. You see the early days of her conceptualizing this idea. She ignored that lady and just found people who would fall for her pitch. Like, truly the confidence. Um, Some people might even, like, admire or envy a scam artist because they're generally quite charming, confident, and they're also shameless. And I think a lot of people might sometimes wish they could be a little more shameless at times and or are just really intrigued by like how brazen they are. And especially because some of these famous you know, scam artists we've seen a lot of content around are, are quite young. Elizabeth also knew how to walk the walk. She put on the Steve Jobs black turtleneck. She masked her natural voice, which was more high-pitched, to sound you know, presumably more masculine in a really misogynistic environment. And I also want to point out that Elizabeth, just like John Meehan, he had his scrubs. She knew that the appearance of looking and dressing the part, that was going to be important. Even when it came down to the technology itself, it was all a facade. It was truly just a useless box. Yeah, the machine didn't work, but that didn't matter. And when people asked questions, Elizabeth exuded, wait for it, Total confidence. Thank you, Elizabeth. I have to tell you, in all my years, I can't recall a private company that I have to candidly many have never heard of getting this kind of attention and scrutiny. What do you think is going on here? This is what happens when you work to change things. And first they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. And the whole fake it till you make it adage, in a lot of ways, really is true or bears out for people. Um, I think a lot of us, you know, sort of going with the term, a lot of us sort of lack the confidence to pretend to be something we're not or to claim we have the answers, which is probably a good thing because I don't think our society would function quite as well if everyone were just such a liar um, and so misrepresenting of who they are and what they can do. But yeah, I think in some ways it sort of taps into something we're both intrigued by and also maybe envy. It's also a great example of how the most brilliant people can be fooled. I mean, Elizabeth Kahn, esteemed politicians, tech entrepreneurs. She got contracts with Walgreens, with Safeway. I mean, personally, I would be so stressed out lying to the most powerful people in the world. (laughs) And she's just like, no, I got this. And I think just in platonic, romantic working ways, people are simply attracted to confidence. So even if you find there to be holes in someone's story or things aren't really making sense or you're a little confused, if they have total confidence in what they're doing to you, you most likely, no matter how smart you are, no matter how aware you are, will give them that confidence back in return. 100%. And it just reminds you, too, that 
any of us could be conned. And this is something I talked to Caroline about in the context of Billy McFarland, the guy behind Firefest. I have a close friend who worked for Billy McFarland at Magnesis. And she said one thing that was just so interesting to her about him as a scam artist. She's like, Billy is just like a twitchy guy. Like he's not particularly like special or charming or smart or handsome or anything like that. In a sense, you have to almost admire the brazenness to be like, well, I deserve this. So I'm going to take it. and I'm going to get it. and I'm in charge of this and all of these people. So in the case of Billy McFarland, Anna Sorkin, or Elizabeth Holmes, there was also this desire to be in their orbit because they were so powerful. Like, okay, Elizabeth might be a little odd, but look at all the powerful people she has on board or this fancy party or this private plane. Yeah, you can sympathize with the people who fell for Billy or Elizabeth or Anna because they wanted to believe that someone like, for example, Anna, would like them. We live in this social media era where we're constantly seeing images of of opulence and wealth and watching reality shows about luxury. So the idea of even like, you know, an Anna Delvey situation of just, oh, my friend Anna is going to take me to Morocco and we're going to stay in this fabulous hotel. I think in some ways people might be willing to put aside any doubts they have because they just are so desperate in some ways to be part of something really special and glamorous. And to be honest, being scammy is very American. This idea that you can be whoever you want to be. The whole rags to riches American dream aspect, the, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, which is kind of a fallacy because that term literally referred to something absurd that's not possible and has been sort of co-opted and changed to mean something that we should all be doing that's attainable. In that sense, it is really American because, you know, these improbable things, these people are really, on the one hand, playing into this notion that you're in charge of your own destiny and that you can overcome any sort of circumstance outside your control, but also just the idea that you can do things that are beyond the pale, or you can lie in such a way to sort of circumvent the systems by which like our society functions. I don't know. I think that's a really interesting notion of the Americanness of this. I mean, it's on the nose, but true. We elected Donald Trump. I mean, also, he's somebody that does have a history of these sort of like schemey, scammy business dealings. Um, And also this just absurd image of opulence and like this very gaudy kind of tacky, like gilded gold, everything, you know, when you look at his New York apartment and things like that and just his general taste. So yeah, it definitely plays into that idea. There are people that are just so lured in by the idea of this almost like Versailles visual, which I guess makes it less American, but, you know, sense of wealth that you're willing to like overlook your better instincts and just sort of ignore any red flags and then just blindly follow someone. I mean, he truly followed the Confidence Man handbook, appealing to victims' fears using charisma, shading the truth to propel his scheme. And you see with a lot of his supporters, it's really hard to admit that they were wrong because just like in any con, it requires humiliation on your part. And you have to admit that you were duped and no one wants to do that. And not even limited to Trump. There is this notion of vulnerable people being told to place the blame for their problems in other places. And then also, I think vulnerable people, politics aside, are definitely you know, seeking somebody to help them, to tell them things are going to be okay, to help them make sense of their lives and their struggles. 
And then once you have such a figure really swoop in and captivate you, I think it's extremely difficult to ever reject that person or the truth they told you because it sort of becomes such a part of your identity. All of a sudden, you're basically having an identity crisis. Whether it's Trump, your boyfriend, your business partner, all of a sudden, the world you thought you lived in has exploded. So, I mean, you could think, are we exploiting these victims? But I think Caroline actually thinks there's some good to getting these stories out. Admitting you're wrong is really hard. You know, in some ways, like, I think that because these scammer stories have become so common and popular in pop culture, I think some people maybe feel a little less ashamed to admit that they were scammed and they were taken for a ride. And so that could actually be a positive thing to come out of this whole frenzy around the genre is people feel a little more comfortable speaking up and sharing their stories because they can see other people doing that as well. And we have to remember, it bears repeating, this could be any of us. Right. A good con artist knows how to exploit your insecurities. And we all have insecurities. And maybe they exploit this insecurity when you're in an especially vulnerable place. Maybe you don't consider yourself a vulnerable person overall, but just in the right moment, the wrong person comes in and really taps into something or, you know, says something that really resonates with you and you build this connection. And it really can. I I think I know, you know, I can think of a handful of people I know who have actually fallen victim to like people who were generally, genuinely con artists. Like I, I know a girl I went to high school with married someone who was also pretending to be a doctor that wasn't. And things like that. I mean, it happens. And I think until you're in that situation, really directly, you can't judge or really know for sure whether or not you're immune to it. Next time on Spectacle. When Gabby Petito was reported missing in September 2021, the world went crazy. Gabby Petito. Gabrielle Petito. Gabby Petito. Seemingly overnight, she went from being just an ordinary 22-year-old girl to a household name. Not only was law enforcement all over the case, but ordinary people like you and me were trying to solve it, scouring the influencer's digital footprint for clues. It was people just micro-analyzing every single YouTube video or how freshly done her blonde dye was. Blonde. That's the other thing. Gabby was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white woman. It was Gwen Eiffel who coined the term missing white woman syndrome, which is that whenever a conventionally attractive white woman who is considered low risk um, goes missing or is murdered, it is a tragedy. And when other people go missing, it's just expected. When we hear the story of Gabby Petito, when we mobilize resources to find her, why aren't we also sharing flyers about Keisha Jacobs, Pamela Butler, and Relisha Rudd? How do law enforcement and the media approach these stories differently, and what does that disparity say about us? That's next time. Spectacle True Crime is a production of Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's hosted by yours truly. 
Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Liz Sanchez is our associate producer. Sound design is Josh Hahn. Original music by Asha Ivanovich. Additional cues from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Our fact checker is Stephen Crichton. Special thanks to Carla Green, Shara Morris, and Catherine St. Louis. I'm Mariah Smith. See you next week.